Welcome to the Neon Noise Podcast, your home for learning ways to attract more traffic to your website, generate more leads, convert more leads into customers, and build stronger relationships with your customers. And now, your hosts, Justin Johnson and Ken Franzen. Hey, 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 Neon Noise Nation. Welcome to the Neon Noise Podcast, where we decode marketing and sales topics to help you grow your business. I am Justin, and with me, I have my co-host, Ken. Ken, what's shaking today? Not too much, Justin. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. Just got back from vacation. Got my batteries all recharged and I'm ready to go. So excited to chat with our featured guest today. Today we have on Jason Falls. He is a nationally recognized speaker, author, and influencer. Jason has been featured on multiple major publications, including Forbes Entrepreneur, NPR, ESPN, and The Wall Street Journal. He recently wrote the book, No Bullshit Social Media. The All Business No Hype Guide to Social Media Marketing. Jason is not afraid to tell the world exactly what he thinks, and brands are better off for listening to his no BS advice. He's a thoughtful individual, effective communicator, and insightful consultant. His no BS advice has landed him an impressive list of clients, including Cafe Express, Jim Beam, General Motors, Rawlings, Fireball Whiskey, just to name a few. I see a trend there, Jason. I don't know if it's a whiskey <laughs> thing or what, but it's good. Jason, welcome to Neon Noise. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, the spirits business. I am in Louisville, Kentucky, so I'm kind of in the love middle it. of it all. Right? <laughs> uh, good stuff. Do me a favor and uh, fill in the blanks on anything that I may have uh, missed. Now you, uh, I, I was getting ready to say thanks, Mom, so that sounded really good. Um, <laughs> love it. <laughs> Probably the one thing that might be missing from that is, uh, and this is kind of gives you a little bit of insight into my background, um, is prior to this whole social media explosion, um, I spent 15 years as a PR guy in college athletics. So I traveled around the country watching ball games for a living, which is not a hard life. Um, no. but it doesn't pay real well. So, <laughs> um, but I, uh, you know, my, my background is in public relations. It's in, uh, working in very, um, small colleges, small athletic departments where I didn't have a lot of staff. So I kind of had to figure it out on my own. And, mm-hmm. um, so my, my background is rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. And so I kind of, that's, that's sort of where my work ethic and whatnot comes from. And I made the transition to mainstream advertising, marketing, PR in the mid two thousands, right when the social media thing was happening and was just in the right place at the right time. Cool. So college athletics and whiskey, not, uh, <laughs> Not, not such a bad combo there. Yeah. Now that I'm not in college athletics anymore, though, I can have college athletics <laughs> at the same time, which is even better. Love it. <laughs> so, Jason, was was the uh, rising of the social media platforms, was that what made your, your switch or was that the catalyst that made that happen? Well, actually, no, the catalyst that made it happen was uh, my son was born and I was traveling, you know, three days a week, nine months out of the year. And I missed most of the first year of his life because I was on the road. Um, but um, I, ma- I landed at Doe Anderson, which is an advertising agency in Louisville. As a PR guy, I was basically handling the Louisville Slugger uh, account. So I had the sports background, which sort of you know, put me in that role. And then um, I looked around and said, hey, why aren't we talking to our clients about blogs and social networks and whatnot? And this was in 2005, 2006. Uh, so social media marketing really as a concept or as a practice hadn't really evolved yet. It 
brands were starting to play with it a little bit. That was about the time you had the Dell Hell explosion and, and, you know, some, some other, you know, sort of things started to percolate that started to make brands think about social media in an interesting way. But that was before Facebook. It was before Twitter. It was, um, MySpace was still a big thing. And I was, you know, kind of on the personal side, like I had a personal blog on MySpace where I just tried to be funny and I was constantly, you know, mining forums and message boards to try to figure out how to get more people to come watch my, you know, student athletes and in, in, in my previous career. And so I had this like practical use of social media, uh, but I never really thought of it as using it for business or using it as a marketing channel. And so I started asking those questions at Doe Anderson and the CEO at the time who's now retired, his name's Dave Wilkins, and then the CEO now, who was the COO at the time, his name's Todd Spencer. They both kind of looked at me and said, man, we don't know what you're talking about, but if you can sell it, you can do it. So if you take an idea to a client with this blog social network thing and they like it, then you've got a new job responsibility. So go for it. And they, they really were, you know, the reason that, that, that I kind of blossomed into the world of social media marketing because they kind of empowered me to do it, trusted that I wasn't going to, you know, screw it up. And, um, and actually, you know, a couple of clients said, yeah, we want to put some money to that. So within like nine months of, of being hired at Doe Anderson, I was the director of social media at an ad advertising agency, which back then advertising agencies didn't even know what social media was. So it was just kind of, I was at the right place at the right time, had some interesting clients to work with, had some interesting opportunities and, and didn't screw it up. Nice. What was the feedback like when you first presented that concept? Because back then, uh, I, I could guess some of the bigger brands you were working with would probably be more receptive and have the resources to devote towards that. But back then, that was a pretty, uh, that was kind of pioneering the way through. And as you mentioned, with the advertising executives that, uh, that you were working with, they, they were kind of like, sure, if you can make it happen. What was it like talking with the clients? Well, so there was there was one particular client. It happened to be the uh, a lady by the name of Sam Seiler, who at the time was the brand manager for Maker's Mark Bourbon. And Doe Anderson has been Maker's Mark's agency of record for years. And for a couple of months, she had this job posting out there for the brand, and it was called Internet Analyst. And at the same time, concurrently, I'm going to the CEO and the COO at Doe Anderson is saying, hey, why aren't we talking to our clients about blogs and social networks? And and it was only after a couple of months worth of conversations did we put the two together and say, I think what Maker's Mark is looking for is this kind of thing. So then I had a conversation with Sam and said, hey, here's what I know and here's what I think Maker's Mark could do if they were to you know, leverage some of these new emerging channels. And she was like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. So there was like this, you know, she, she didn't know what to call it. And when I looked at this internet analyst job posting, I thought she wanted somebody to look at spreadsheets all day. I didn't know what she was talking sure. about. But when we finally had this face-to-face -face conversation, she was like, this is it. This is what I'm looking for. So I had a client that was really, uh, she didn't know what social media was really, but she knew that it was an opportunity and she wanted to explore it. And she was willing to put a little bit, a little bit of budget behind it. 
the conversation with the other clients back then, as we started to kind of roll it out and say, Hey, we have this newfound capability because Jason kind of knows what he's doing with social media. So we can help you there. So we talked to the, we had a banking client at the time. We had a retail chain of suntan stores at the time. There were lots of, of clients within the, the, the brand, the, the agency, you know, portfolio and all of them were very interested and they loved the ideas we were bringing to them but they didn't want to put any money behind it. And so it was a slow burn of convincing them, Hey, this will work. Here are the goals. Here's what we're going to try to achieve with this. And, and this is how it will, you know, how it can come to, to life and why you should pay for it. So it was, it became the, the standard sort of agency thing of we've got to convince them that this is going to be uh, a worthwhile investment um, and so from a very early stage in my sort of quote unquote social media strategy life, I was conditioned that you have to make it, uh, you have to connect the dots to business results. Otherwise brands aren't going to support it and you're not going to be able to do it. And I think that's one thing that sort of differentiated me early on because in the mid two thousands, everybody was talking about everybody who was talking about social media was talking about it in terms of let's join the conversation. It's all about engagement and we want to be wonderful kumbaya singing people with our, our customers and our fans. And nobody was saying, screw that. Is it going to drive business? And so I was one of the first people, well, I may not have been the first, but I was one of the first people to raise my hand and say, um, yeah, that join the conversation stuff. That's kind of bullshit. Uh, <laughs> unless, unless you join the conversation and are motivating people to buy your product. And so we have to find a way to bridge that gap. You bring up a super interesting point because I think that delayed so many small businesses and entrepreneurs from getting on board with social media because they, they probably they looked at it and, and said, well, I, one, I've got limited resources. I can't be part of this conversation, can't keep up on this, or I don't see where it's going to impact the bottom line, drive those results. So I have a question for you. One, what ways were you were you tangibly delivering results what what were you showing to the brands and how quickly did that uh materialize for you then uh because i think there's a lot of similarities today i, I just think that the, a lot of the small business entrepreneurs that uh we work with we list that our listeners are just delayed in the the jumping in and i think they still have a bit of this notion that it's about the conversation and they're missing the mark a little bit about the content uh, marketing angle of it. Right. So I, I think, you know, the, you, what, what you have to do when you are thinking about how your business is going to leverage social media is you have to decide, okay, what can social media do for me? And then what do I want it to do for me? And, and there's really any type of marketing and communications from a business standpoint um, has, there's basically two primary you know, paths that you take. You either take the direct response path of I'm going to say something which is going to cause people to purchase, visit, download, click, right? You're getting a direct response to whatever your communication is. And then the other path is I want to create awareness. I want to build a brand. I want to let people know who I am, not what I sell. So those, those, that's the first fork in the road, right? So when you're developing a strategy for a campaign, you have to figure out what are we trying to do here? We want to create branding and awareness 
from a broad level perspective, because the more people know who we are and the more people come to know, like, and trust us, the more likely they will be to purchase what it is we sell when we have those opportunities. Um, and so for a company to go to market in any communications channel or any marketing channel and say, we are all about direct response and that's all we're about. Well, you can succeed that way. And there's lots of internet marketing people who have focused solely on SEO and pay-per-click and whatnot that have been able to do that over the years. We're all about the click. We're all about the conversion. We're all about, you know, making things happen. But if they don't lay the foundation first by building a brand, it takes longer and they can't scale as quickly. And so what I tried to do with the clients that I worked with early on was pick one of those two paths. Are we trying to drive direct response or are we trying to create awareness, relationships, you know, lay that foundation of trust so that we can convert later? And fortunately, Doe Anderson is a national ad agency and has a large base of clients. And so, for instance, Maker's Mark Bourbon, you know, they actually, Maker's Mark itself, the brand doesn't actually sell bourbon to consumers. It sells through channels to either liquor stores or bars. Right. So they their whole marketing effort is all about creating branding and awareness. They're not about direct response. So it was pretty easy from that point, from the from a strategic standpoint to say, we're going to use social media to become yet another touch point where consumers interact with the brand or have some sort of communication with the brand so that they know, like and trust us and want to try our product whenever they go to the bar or they go to the liquor store. So Maker's Mark, you know, branding and awareness is really all about creating a relationship so that you increase what they call in the spirits business, increasing call, right? You want people to call for you by name. You want people to say Maker's Mark, not bourbon, right? So what we did within that particular brand in that particular situation was you have to also understand that Maker's Mark is a different animal because they communicate primarily with their ambassador program. They have a large loyalty program called the Maker's Mark Ambassadors. So all of my uh, energies were really focused on let's bring social media into the fold with Maker's Mark Ambassadors so that they get a blog from the CEO, Bill Samuels Jr., so that they get a direct connection to him, so that they feel like they're interacting more with the family behind the brand because that creates that sense of trust and loyalty and and a relationship with consumers. And so that was sort of that, you know, perspective on the other brands that we worked with. Um, I would go to them and say, look, you know, you can create a relationship, you can create that branding and awareness, or we can try to, you know, drive direct response. The successful programs of direct response for social media in the mid to, to late 2000s before consumers were really sort of getting into the whole social media thing and understanding that brands are there too and they can trust them. Um, the ones that were able to do it were the ones like Dell that had something insatiable that people wanted to buy. So Dell Outlet on Twitter was the first real commercial direct response channel via social media where a company just made a lot of money because they put links out there to discounted products. And Dell Outlet was the first real proof point that said, hey, you can use social media to make money. But that doesn't mean that every business out there that can throw out links on Twitter and make money, you have to have a commodity. You have to have an insatiable product. They were, you know, overstock MP3 players. They were selling for 99 bucks on Dell Outlet and you could just go click on it and get something that was retailing for $300 for a third of the price. 
I mean, who's not going to want to do that? You know, there's going to be a lot of people that, yeah. that are going to go do that. So it really, you know, for me, it was always about we've got to create branding and awareness and then lay the foundation for those moments in time where we say, hey, we've got something you might want to buy. Here's a, here's a way to go to go purchase that. Awesome. So then when we look at the landscape and how that's changed, because back then uh, the, the platforms haven't figured out a way to monetize it just quite yet. And, and that's changed quite a bit. You could get a Facebook post to actually appear in front of some of your fans then. And now <laughs> that's different. So what's what what do we do today? What's changed? How do those strategies differ? Uh, the approach? I mean, if we're looking at from a branding and a direct response approach um you know is it because i I, i'm looking at direct response and i'm seeing okay great uh i see a lot more people looking at facebook and and leveraging that platform over even uh, google adwords and so where does that play in the landscape today based on the current uh, configurations of the social media platforms well fortunately the social advertising has matured to the point to where now social media channels make more sense to brands in terms of an advertising channel. Um, yes, you can have organic content. Yes, you can have organic engagement with your fans that has more of a public relations, customer service, community relations feel to it. So if you're thinking in terms of traditional marketing and communications, that's where organic social media uh, might lay. But then, you know, the, the, the maturation of Facebook advertising and all the other social advertising platforms, now brands are looking at it with, okay, we know that if we have a direct response campaign and we're trying to get people to click and purchase, we now know that we can, you know, pick all of our traditional, you know, advertising channels and create awareness and drive people to a website or drive people to our stores to buy. But in social media, we can actually, instead of trying to reach many, and hope that a few click through, we can now actually just focus on the few that are going to click through. We can target much more specifically, much more granularly so that we know that the efficiency of our ad dollar is being maximized. So instead of, um, you know, someone like, let's say, um, Volkswagen, and I'm going to throw out some broad, you know, swath stereotypes here. But let's say Volkswagen is trying to, you know, market their new, uh, a new automobile. You know, they can now, instead of spending a bazillion dollars on a television campaign to reach millions of people, they can actually go to Facebook and spend a, a literally like 1% of a television budget and reach the, you know, 15 to 20,000 people that are more likely to buy that model of Volkswagen. Um, and, and reach them repetitively in their streams so that those consumers are reinforced with that message. Now, I would never recommend that Volkswagen or any other brand say, let's pump all of our budget into Facebook and nothing else. You still need the television campaigns. You still need the multiple touch points to reach consumers because, again, it takes 8, 12, 15, depending upon the complexity of the product, touch points in order for a consumer to decide they want to try or consider a product. So, Facebook becomes one of many uh, options to get in front of those people, but to get in front of them on Facebook or even Twitter or Instagram or these other social platforms, you spend a lot less money and you can be a lot more granular on who you're reaching. So I've told people before, if you want to advertise a new bourbon to 44-year-old 
white males with kids <laughs> who are divorced in Louisville, Kentucky, who like the Black Keys, Waylon Jennings, Ford automobiles, <laughs> and football, then me and the 17 other guys in Louisville are going to see your damn man, right? So Done. you can get that granular with, with social advertising, which makes it um, a much more cost-effective channel. And if you do everything else right, if you have the right copy, the right images, you know, the right targeting, the right research behind it, your social advertising campaigns can produce a heck of a lot more revenue per dollar spent on advertising than old TV campaigns could. Now, mastering that formula is, is today's marketing challenge for big brands. Yeah. You bring up an interesting point because I hear a lot of uh, clients talk about the uh, how excited they are they can do things, get so granular, but then they they make comments like I'm pulling everything from my TV budget and I'm going to put it all over and I can save so much more money in the multiple touch points that you bring up where the TV, the the traditional means are still uh, necessary to have a place in this marketing mix are so so important to continue to to drive everything forward. But you bring up an interesting point about how powerful these these social media platforms are becoming and how disruptive they're they're they are now today to the traditional media you hear things like email email's dead or email as a marketing tool is dead um and you hear about facebook messenger and the increased use of it as a communication tool that's going to replace email and email no longer will exist and i'm not completely buying in and i'm based on some of the things you said i don't know that you would but i'd interest, be interested to hear your thoughts on emails a viable viable marketing tool and uh will facebook be the uh the one and only mecca of our uh, existence or will there other is there world places in this world for other things well facebook certainly has taken a big chunk of uh where people communicate um, but I don't think the, I, I never believe anyone who says that X or Y is dead because they're just, it's just a headline to grab your attention. Email is not dead. In fact, email is still the most effective, uh, marketing channel in terms of ROI. When you get that person's email address and you have permission to be in their inbox, that is still the most valuable digital real estate, uh, uh, of all. Um, and if you can get in their inbox and get them to consistently open and read your emails and you're continually nurturing, nurturing them along, you have a much better chance of converting that customer than with any other digital marketing channel. And I'm sure there's probably some argument out there that email would be more effective than quite a few other non-digital marketing channels. Um, I don't know the, the numbers on that, but it's certainly the most effective digital. I think the, I want to say the Direct Marketers Association is the one that did the stat a few years ago. And I don't know that it's, I haven't seen an updated version of it in a while, but it's something like email marketing is, um, it's, it, it produces like a 22%, uh, more ROI than other channels or something like that. I can't remember what the exact number is, um, but it's, it's, it's definitely uh, not dead and it's not dying either. What's happening is where 
consumers prefer to communicate and where they do their transactional communications are shifting a bit. So you have people who are locked into the Facebook platform because of all of the benefits that it brings with it. You can keep in contact with family and friends. You can have private communication with them, etc. So Facebook Messenger now is becoming more relevant to people. But still, when people want to transact, when they want to uh, put in their credit card number, when they want to make their money, they're less likely, even though Facebook's trying to lure them into this new Facebook marketplace and so on and so forth, they're less likely to say, I'm going to give my credit card number to Facebook. They're more likely to say, I'm going to go you know, subscribe to this company's email newsletter or go to their website and request information or go to their Facebook page and request information. And then I'm going to click on those links and go to the website where I see the brand's logo and I see that, you know, that company and that I know that I can trust that this is the company I'm dealing with. So I am not going to, as much as I love, um, ordering clothes from I'm a I'm a large size guy and I, I deal with DXL a lot because they they carry my size clothes. I love dealing with DXL. I'm never going to purchase a DXL clothing item on Facebook. I'm going to click through to the DXL website because that's the brand. That's who I'm doing my business with. And I'm going to subscribe to their deals and their coupons and whatnot via email that's going to come directly to me in the real estate that I own, or at least I co-op through Gmail or whatever. Um, and I call my own because that's where I feel safe, secure, and I feel like I can trust things. I don't think as, as secure as Facebook is, and as much as they do protect our privacy, which many people still have the misnomer that they don't, but as much as they do, I still don't think anybody is going to trust a social network like Facebook to, you know, kind of protect and secure my financial transactions and information like that. I still think we're going to say, no, 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 you at least need to email me. If not, you know, some other level of I'm going to come into the store, et cetera. So email's not dead. Um, it's the, the way that people use email is shifting. The behavior is shifting a bit, but I still think you've got that trust factor that Facebook's a long way away from people saying, oh yeah, here's my credit card. Let me just do all my financial transactions there. That's good news because <laughs> I was yeah. worried for a little bit there. Not, not really, but, uh, <laughs> so the inbox though is still the, the, the key component. And I've, I've believed that for years and I, and I still do. I've, I'm much in the, in line with your school of thought on this. Uh, but the inbox still can get crowded. There's still a noise in the inbox and any marketers competing for attention. Uh, even once they do have that, uh, that email address permission based with hope, um, what uh, what can a marketer, what can a business owner, entrepreneur, one of our listeners uh, focus on to make sure they have a successful email? What are some of the core components of a, of a successful email uh, that, that's going to help get that visibility we're looking for in the inbox? That's a that's a great question. And, you know, you could easily jump into you have to have a great headline and you have to have a great entry paragraph, whatever. I think the most important thing to having a successful email marketing program and email marketing campaign is having the right people on your list and making sure that the people who you are sending that email to are people who want it, people who have raised their hand and said, yes, I want what you're selling in that email, whatever that is. Um, and, and that all comes from content strategy. It's really saying, okay, what is our email? What are we going to send these people? Why are we going to send it? How frequently are we going to send it? 
Um, who is it that we're trying to send it to and what do we want to get them to do? So for, I'll give you a really good example. At least I'm, I'm fascinated with it right now. I don't know if you guys uh, subscribe to uh, the Dollar Shave Club. I do. Um, I, I think, I think Ken, I think I'm not, I'm not sure about all of you, but I think Ken, you're a, a bearded gentleman like myself. I am. I and, am. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, but unfortunately we still have to, you know, even that up and shave the neck and all that good stuff. So I still, I subscribe to the dollar shave club. Their email marketing is fantastic because it's not about selling razors. It's not about upselling you on the creams and the lotions and the other things that they have, even though within the email newsletter, you have the opportunity. There's ads there where you can click and purchase. So they do convert, you know, revenue that way. But the email newsletter is really all about um, fueling the lifestyle of the person who would be a Dollar Shave Club member. So I remember I wrote about this not too long ago. They had a headline, the he the, the subject line of their email was something along the lines of, um, I, I can't remember the specifics of it, but it was something having to do with, you know, how to, how to get more, you know, more orgasms mean you do X, Y, Z. And it has nothing to do with shaving unless you're like, go have a weird fetish. Right. But, um, it has nothing to do with shaving. It has nothing to do with their products, but it has everything to do with that sort of, uh, 20 something to 40 something, you know, maybe a little bit on the bro culture, male attitude, right? But that's their target audience. And so they're serving that audience with entertaining, engaging, maybe even informational and useful uh, content that sort of colors that person's life. Why would a brand do that? Because it makes people raise their hand and say, I want that uh, email newsletter in my inbox. And Dollar Shave Club knows that if they can get in your inbox, then, and they can get you to open those emails frequently, then they've got you. At some point, they're going to say, Hey, you know, why don't you, uh, you know, for 25 bucks, why don't you, uh, subscribe to Dollar Shave Club for your dad this Christmas, which I did last year. Right. And so it's those types of opportunities that they will present you from time to time in the middle of the experience of having all this entertaining, engaging content in your inbox. So what you, the most important thing you, you, you can do is make sure that you're sending the emails to the right people, people who uh, are your, your target, people who you are trying to, you know, persuade to do something, people who are more likely to want to do business with you. The second thing is you've got to identify what kind of content will make them say, holy crap, I got to open this. Th this headline is awesome. Or this topic is really interesting to me, or that's going to fill some sort of void in my life, whatever that may be. Maybe it's a, a critical one, or maybe it's just, I just need to be entertained for the next two minutes. So I'm going to click on this and read it. So it's it's obviously a combination of all of those things. You've got to have the right target audience. You've got to have the right understanding and awareness of them and what they need and what they don't have in their online experience. You've got to have uh, you know the right content in order to be able to get their attention, to get them to click and open. And then you've got to be able to occasionally present the right opportunity to say, here's an opportunity for you to purchase something extra from us that will make your life better. And so I'm not the kind of guy who is going to buy the uh, lotions and creams that Dollar Shave Club necessarily sells. But the more they present those messages to me and give me 
interesting, fun reasons to do that. I may say, you know what, let's try that next month. And so they're going to upsell me at some point, And I know that. Um, but I willingly subscribe to the email because all that content that they send me is right where I want to be, man. It's amusing. It's entertaining. It sometimes is helpful and useful. And if your brand or your company can figure out how to produce that for your target audience, then you're going to get people to open those emails. So they're going above and beyond the sales pitch every time they're giving you value. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you think about it, what are the brands that you like to do business with? They're the ones that present you with more than a sales pitch. They're the ones that you feel like you have a connection to uh, for one reason or another. Um, you know, maybe it's you really like their celebrity spokesperson. Okay, fine. That's a perfectly fine reason to trust a brand. And that's why brands will invest lots of money in those celebrity spokespeople. Maybe it's because the brand comes really highly recommended from family or friends. But as you've gotten to know the brand, as you've ordered their products, you feel some sort of kinship with them for some reason. But it's almost always because they go above and beyond the the call of duty of here's a product, purchase it now to give you something more. There are certainly commodity products out there that you don't engage with, that you don't think about, that you just purchase because you have to or your parents did or it was recommended once you tried it and you liked it. Um, but the ones that you really are passionate about that you will be a loyal customer for are the ones that engage you. And let me give you a quick example. I, I, I know that it's probably beyond the realm of most people's um, uh, imagination to be passionate about their toilet paper. But let me, <laughs> but let me, let me just bear with me here. I'm sitting on Twitter one day. It's the day after Labor Day. It was about three or four years ago. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking around at several brands trying to see what brands are doing on Twitter and I'm looking for some case studies. And I happen across a tweet from Charmin. All right. The toilet paper, Charmin. And Charmin's packaging, you know, they've got the pink and the blue bears and they almost kind of are almost sort of kind of marketing to it almost seems like they're marketing to kids or at least parents or whatever with their packaging, but they've got this kind of light, fun kind of, you know, look and feel. And I go to Charmin's Twitter account. This is the day after Labor Day. And I see a tweet that says, I, I think I'm, I'm almost quoting this verbatim, that awkward moment when you realize you shouldn't have had that extra chili dog hashtag tweet from the seat. <laughs> I lost my mind. I, I, I almost fell out of my chair laughing because it was right after a cookout day. It was totally on, you know, it was, it was right in the realm of potty humor, but it was clean and tasteful <laughs> potty humor. If there is a such thing, sure. you know, so it was light. It was fun. It was something I could turn around and tell my kids and they would laugh at it. And I, <laughs> I suddenly fell in love with my toilet paper. I was like, I love Charmin. And I promise you, I have a, 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 at least once every, I don't know how, how every three or four months, I walk down that big white aisle in the grocery store and I don't look at any other brand. I look for the little bears and the Charmin logo and that's what I buy. I'm a loyal Charmin customer because at one point they added something to my life. Now I have since subscribed to their, you know, Twitter feed and their Facebook feed and, and Instagram. And so they have a brand that is, goes above and beyond. They're fun. They're engaging. Um, it's lighthearted potty humor. It's not gross. It's 
kind of goofy and silly, which I think is hysterical. And I can turn around and repeat to my kids and they laugh without me having to like censor what I would normally jokes. I would normally tell because the jokes I would normally tell, I would probably not be a good father if I turned around and told them. So (laughs) it's one of those brands that adds flavor to my life. They're not asking me to buy toilet paper, but I'm buying toilet paper. It's indirect, uh, indirectly influencing your, your buying habits, which is absolutely, which is awesome. So major components, just to recap here, just a little bit for the listening audience is uh, send to the right people, make the content desirable and present the right opportunities. I hit that pretty spot on Jason. Yeah, that's it, man. That's a pretty good three-step guide to email marketing right there. Good stuff. And I think so many miss the, I know that, uh, I always bring up uh, one particular brand is I receive golf galaxy emails every day with just sales opportunities over and over and over again. And it's quickly, uh, I tune it out until I have a need and it's usually around father's day or uh, Mm -hmm. my brother's birthday. And so, uh, their, their message is strictly price-based and, and there's no value there. And so I, I only, I view them as a discount you know, when I need a deal or a gift and that's only it and uh, nothing else. So yeah. um, that, that value that you, the stories you tell are excellent. I appreciate that. Well, could you imagine if golf galaxy said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to identify a sub, a sub segment of our audience um, that hasn't, uh, that doesn't really open our emails anymore. They've gotten bored with it. We're going to send them a special note and say, Hey, we're going to move you to a different list because you don't open our little coupons every week. Um, and we're only going to send you one email a month. And that one email a month is going to have a deal that you're not going to want to say no to. Imagine That's how awesome many people idea. they could turn into customers just by doing that. They're saying, you know what? Yeah. Ken doesn't open our emails. He only does it around Father's Day. Let's do one a month where we give him like a crazy 50% off of something something really expensive or whatever. I'll bet you within the next 12 months, Ken's going to buy a couple things from us. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's, it's a, you just, you got to look at it from a different perspective sometimes to realize, wait a minute. Cause it, cause I subscribe to a couple of those coupon type emails too. And what happens when you subscribe to those emails that you get once a week or even every day is you tune them out. You don't open them. You don't look at them. You're like, eh, I'll get back to it later or I'll come search for it when I want to. I would much rather as a brand say when, when my email hits the inbox, I want people to go, Holy crap. I better open this. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just me. Oh, I think that, that, uh, that's, that should be the case across the board, but, uh, that's, you know, you got to make sure you have the right focus and purpose when you're, when you're putting together those campaigns. So we've talked about email marketing. We've talked about social media. How, how can the two work together and maybe some, do you have any simple strategies that you could share and, for, for our listeners that they could potentially implement? Well, sure. I mean, obviously it's very easy to get people to look at you at least for a couple of seconds on social media. It's not easy to get them to subscribe to your email stuff and get in their inbox. So what I've always suggested is, you know, you've got to create some premium value content for your email that is going to incite in, 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 incent people people are going to be incented to say, I want you to give you my contact information. I want you in my inbox. So create your premium content there. You know, your insatiable newsletter, your insatiable deal uh, or combination thereof. And then 
you know, create engaging social content that's, you know, not the premium stuff. Maybe it's a teaser to the premium stuff, uh, but maybe it's a bunch of other content that you're trying to get people's attention in the social web. But consistently through your social media channels, remind folks, hey, if you want really good stuff, if you want the really good deal, if you want the weekly uh, you know, missive from the CEO that is just a hysterical because he's got a really funny personality or whatever your thing is in your email content, tell them on social, remind them, hey, come over and subscribe. There's a reason for you to subscribe to this email. Social media oftentimes is a stair step from being aware of a brand to connecting with a brand in a very passive way to then motivating them to connect with you in a very active way. And social media is a much more passive relationship. Email is a much more active relationship because you're actually getting in their inbox and hopefully they're opening it and clicking and reading and so on and so forth. So use social to reach more people to promote your email. But then also, you know, when you have something that's awesome on email, you want to encourage your email subscribers to share that opportunity with their friends. You may want to say, hey, share this with your friends by, you know, just sharing the email with them. So you get your email out to more people, which is great. But you may also motivate them to say, you know, tell people why you subscribe to the email so they'll subscribe as well. So um, and in doing that, you know, you can say share with your friends. You can share it obviously privately via email or you can share it on their Facebook page or their Twitter page. So you can kind of cross promote, uh, I think, is is the best way to do it. But. That's the best way to do it from a consistency standpoint. But at the same time, you can also come up with really kind of clever promotions and whatnot and campaigns that you deploy on social to specifically drive more email subscriptions or special things that you do through your email list to specifically drive social media interactions. So if you think about it from a strategic standpoint, you've got a captive audience with your email list. You've got a passive audience with your social followers. And at some point in time, you're going to want to motivate either of those groups to do different things. And it might be you want to motivate the passive folks to be more active, or it might be that you want to motivate the really active folks to help you grow those more passive followers. So just think about those opportunities uh, of how you can integrate those two to you know move the needle in you know whichever you know, direction you want to move it. And using social for this is, is I think, becoming more increasingly popular. Um, I still think there's tons of room for, uh, there's tons of opportunity there. Uh, for not, not many, the masses haven't quite adopted it yet, but the landscape can get noisy. And what's the key, in, whether it's on social or whether it's out there in general marketing, do you have any key or secrets or, or tips for standing out in the digital, noisy digital landscape or just the marketing world itself? Well, I mean, my whole thing goes back to what we were talking about earlier with getting people to open your emails. You know, your content has to be, it has to be outstanding. You have to be providing value that they're not getting elsewhere. Um, kind of the way that I've always, you know, sort of explained it to people and in, in, you know, in, in, sort of a soundbite is your job as a marketer today is to create holy smokes content. And so whether that's an advertisement, whether it's a headline, whether it's a billboard, whether it's your, 
you know, annual report, your CEO speech, a tweet, a Facebook post, an Instagram image, a video, doesn't matter what type of content you're creating. Your job is to create content that makes the target audience go, holy smokes, that's insert adjective here. And it could be, holy smokes, that's awesome. That's interesting. That's funny. I've got to share that with someone that's sad. Um, that's compelling, you know, you've got to create that emotional trigger in people with the content that you produce. And the only way that you really stand out as signal amongst the noise in today's very, very noisy landscape is by creating content that is holy smokes content that makes people stop and go, holy smokes. And, and you look at the buzz feeds of the world and and, you know, the various websites out there that you see shared more frequently in your streams, it, the, the reason that those headlines and those news articles and those videos and those images and memes get shared is because they create some sort of holy smokes reaction, whether it's laughter or sadness or shock or awe. Um, you are the, the media folks out there, especially the blogs and websites like BuzzFeed that are all about driving eyeballs are really, really good at creating holy smokes moments. Now you could argue that that's, you know, the, the first domino or the reason that we're in this era of quote unquote fake news and exaggerated headlines and all that good stuff. Yeah, you can. And, and you, maybe you want to take a couple steps back and say, well, for us, we're going to do it, you know, a little bit different way. We're going to apply some ethical standards here. Fine. You can do that all you want, but in order to drive eyeballs, you have to get their attention. And in order to get their attention, when everybody else is pulling down their pants and setting themselves on fire, you got to figure out a way to pull down your pants, set yourself on fire and blow bubbles or whatever, right? <laughs> you've got to, you've got to take it to that next step that unfortunately that creates a culture of one upsmanship and, uh, and it becomes harder and harder and harder to stand out. But if you build an audience with consistently good content that delivers on the promise of the headlines and you build it over time, then the audience that you really want to reach is going to be there by the time, you know, you get to the point to where you're like, I can't keep one up in myself. Sure. So when you say your job as a marketer is to create this, the holy smoke content, would, would you hinge a entire content strategy on if you're not going to make a holy smokes, if you're not going to go big, then go home. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know that I would do that. And the reason I would say that is because the, 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 the sort of uh, forgotten um, rule of the road in the internet is that your number one priority should always be to win search. Um, Social's great. Email marketing's awesome. Uh, there's so much to be had in all these different digital channels, but the low hanging fruit are the people that are looking for an answer to a question or a solution to a problem. And they're going to go to a search engine and they're going to type in that question or that problem. And you need to hope that your content comes up. So if your content is not quote unquote, holy smokes, if it doesn't necessarily break through the clutter, break through the noise on social channels and getting a lot of likes and comments and et cetera, it is still, um, indexable. It is still fodder for the search engines. Now there is an argument to be made that if you don't drive enough attention to it, 
and there aren't social signals that Google and the other search engines can read that says, hey, this content should rank better. You know, so social goes hand in hand with search. But I would not say go big or go home, because if you go home, then there's nothing there for people to find. And the people who are searching are the ones who are most uh, likely to convert if you are answering their question or solving their problem. So there's that under underbelly of the Internet is you got to rank well for search. You got to win the search results. The showmanship piece of it comes out in social media and email marketing and trying to stand out to the human being. But you still also have to put some foundational content out there for those spiders to get, because if the spiders don't get you, then, you know, you're going to you're, you're missing out on potentially 50 percent or more of, of the potential business you could get from the Internet. Sure. And I think the, the, the main point that the take away from this is, is the fact of creating participating in the creation of content uh, as a marketer. Uh, that there's so many there that I think are still sitting on the sidelines waiting for something to happen. Uh, those, those are oftentimes, I think, the, the ones looking for the, the silver bullet, that magical pill that you take that solves all the marketing issues. And I would argue to say, and you can agree or disagree with me, Jason, that the, the content is, should be the, the very focal point, whether it's a blog post, video, social media post, infographics, ebook offers, you name it, the, the focal point, the foundation of what drives it all. Yep. It's that you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the content drives it. And then you have the execution of, uh, that content being indexed by search engines on one hand and being consumed by actual human beings on the other. And if you can figure out how to master sort of both sides of that and see how each feeds one another, um, then you're well on your way to being pretty successful in the digital space. Excellent. So I have a question for you. You mentioned uh, something called conversation research on your website. What yep. What is that and what is, what is it used for? So the common term that people uh, will, that's kind of the midway term between not knowing anything about it and understanding what conversation research is, is social listening. And I've been, you know, using social listening or social media monitoring for brands and clients for almost 10 years now. But what I've learned in that time of working with the social listening platforms and the different softwares out there that allow you to find out where people are talking about you or some other topic online is that the, the machines can only go so far. And so, for example, the last three or four major research projects we've done at the Conversation Research Institute, which is a company that I started with a couple of partners back in the fall to do this for brands. Um, the last three or four projects we've done, we've had, you know, like 25,000 results have come back for one particular brand and 79,000 results have come back for another and, and 15,000 results have come back for a third. Well, as we've gone through with human being eyes and judgment to say, well, is this information, are these results actually relevant? We get less than 9% of the results that come back are actually consumers talking about the brand. Um, so the other, you know, 91% are press releases or news articles or maybe retweets or maybe, um, you know, 
ambiguous terms that sort of look like the brand but really aren't. And so when you actually drill down the software that you can use to go out there and find conversations about you really returns you with a whole lot of, again, uh, noise and not enough signal. So what the Conversation Research Institute does and what Conversation Research is, is collecting the data with the tools, but then actually putting it through a process of human analysis so that you actually get the data and the results and the conversations that matter. Because right now we think that there are hundreds and hundreds of brands out there paying thousands of dollars a month for software that's giving them results that they're making marketing decisions on and the results are crap. And mm -hmm. so we're trying to say, we're going to weed out the crap so that you have the results that can actually make a difference in the marketing decisions that you're making for your business. Very interesting. Very interesting. I, I uh, look at, and you, you look at those analysts because you also have the, the idea out there of, you know, how much of your Google analytics report is bot traffic versus actual mm -hmm. visitors. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, to, to take that to the social level and manually go through that. But that, that number seems crazy high. I mean, 91%. <laughs> it is. Huge. I mean, and we've, we've sat down and, and gone through some pretty advanced Boolean searches, um, and tried to whittle that number, get that number up to where we're getting all oh, 15, 20, 30. I mean, even 30% of what you get back being accurate would be crappy. In my personal opinion, the software should be far better than it is, uh, especially with an industry that's been out there for 10 years. But for whatever reason, you know, brands, you know, the software companies say, look, we typed in Kentucky Fried Chicken and there's a million results. And the people at Kentucky Fried Chicken go, oh, my goodness, we must look at pie charts, you know, <laughs> and instead of saying, well, out of those million results, how many people are talking about fried chicken, but not talking about Kentucky Fried Chicken? Um, yeah. and there are certainly, that's exaggerating it a bit, but at the same time, software companies are in the business of selling software. They're not necessarily in the business of making sure that you're getting the accurate data out of that software in order to make decisions. I want to help bridge that gap with people and do the research that actually is required to make the social media conversations make sense to you. And we've been able to do that with a couple of dozen clients in the last seven or eight months. And, you know, the, the, the company and the practice are growing slowly, but the, the brands that we're working with are looking at the data and going, holy crap, like I can make decisions on this because it's real. It's not 10% of the whole. It's 100% of the whole. Sure. And, and, and it has definite foundation to it where hey, you look at a lot of analytics and, and, you know, you start, I think people are starting to realize that, hey, that I'm glad I have this data, but how much... How accurate is it? Right. And, you know, I, I see different conflicting reports. Um, sometimes we have clients who get a report from uh, one source and a report from another, and the uh, reports are drastically different. And they just like, how can this be different? This doesn't make right. sense. These should be exactly the same. I'm like, no, they're not going to be. There's. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you get into the whole differentiating the software because. You know, NetBase is going to pull in a different volume of sources than Sysimos, which is going to pull in a different volume. Than, I mean, there's just inherent differences in how they collect their data. I'm not saying any one of them is good, bad, or indifferent. They just have different ways of doing it. So as a researcher, you have to go, or as a brand, you have to go into it knowing I'm getting a pretty good 
not really a same. It's not a sample size. You're actually getting a high volume of data, but you're not getting everything. You're not getting things that people post on their Facebook news feeds because that's, you know, if you're posting it on your Facebook profile, then it's private. Facebook doesn't give that to us. So you're not seeing everything, but you are trying to understand and analyze what you can see, which can be a sample and indicative of what the greater market is talking about. And that can help you make really good decisions. Excellent. Interesting in the same. Now, this is normally where I ask, and you might've just answered this. What are you working on now? What what are you really excited about at the moment? Uh, is it that conversation research Institute or do you, is there a couple other things you have that you're working on that, uh, or something else that's super exciting to you at the moment? Yeah, I've got two things I'm doing right now that are, you know, taking up, you know, 100% of my time and I'm really enjoying them. Uh, one obviously is growing the practice of conversation research and doing conversation research for brands, which is fantastic. Uh, conversationresearchinstitute.com is where to find us if you're interested in that. The other thing I'm doing is I've developed, I decided that I wasn't doing enough to help small businesses in, in my practice. And so as a consultant and or speaker, whatever, I've developed a small business workshop series called Small Business Smart Marketing. And I've taken it to four or five cities now around the country. I've done one in Texas, a couple here in Kentucky. Um, and I'm, um, I'm really connecting with small businesses and helping those that don't have websites or have websites, but don't know how to use them or aren't getting anything out of them, understand how to generate leads online and take their digital marketing to the next step. And those are fun. And I'm partnering with economic development organizations or chambers of commerce or even local, you know, web development agencies and, and, and folks who are trying to derive leads from their communities. I'm going in and presenting a workshop for these folks and, and establishing myself as a resource for them. And, uh, I'm really enjoying that. If I feel like I'm giving back a little bit, even though there's obviously money to be made in, in the speaking and all that good stuff, I feel like I'm actually connecting with these small businesses and being a, a resource for them, which makes me feel good about getting up and doing what I do. Awesome. Good stuff. Hey, uh, Jason, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you? Man, I'm Jason Falls everywhere. There's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a politician in uh, North Carolina with the same name who hates my guts um, <laughs> because I am Jason Falls on every major social network. Uh, JasonFalls.com is kind of my, my, my home on the Internet. Um, he's Falls Jason on Twitter. So if you want to give him a shout out, Love he's it. a good guy. He's a, <laughs> he's a county commissioner or something in North Carolina, but, uh, he won't send me a yard sign. Some buck I've been trying to come on, man, That's send funny, me a yard man. sign. Shoot me a yard sign. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm really easy to find. I'm Jason Falls on Twitter. Jason Falls on Facebook. Actually, if you Sweet. go to facebook.com slash the Jason Falls, that's kind of my speaker consultant page. And then I'm just, my personal page is just slash Jason Falls. And then, cool. uh, yeah, LinkedIn, the whole works. I'm just Jason Falls. I'm easy to find. Easy stuff. All right. Good stuff. Hey, Jason, before we say goodbye today, if there's one piece of parting advice for the listening audience, what would that be? Always start with your goal. You know, start with the business goal. Make sure that what you're doing in social and digital ladders up to helping you accomplish that. That'll that'll prevent a lot of distraction and a lot of frustration with digital marketing. If you can say, how is this helping us accomplish this goal of either growing our business or you know, building a brand or driving sales, whatever your overall main business objective is, keep that in mind with everything you do. And you're probably going to be less frustrated along the way. 
Good point. Absolutely. Always start with your goals. All right, Neon Noise Nation, we hope you enjoyed our conversation today with Jason. Be sure to go over and check out his website at www.jasonfalls.com. Jason, thanks again for being on the show today. We had a great time, a lot of value there. Uh, As always, the show notes for today will be available at neongoldfish.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, this is Justin, Ken, and Jason signing off. Neon Noise Nation, we will see you again next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Neon Noise Podcast. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, please subscribe, share with a friend, or write a review. We want to cover the topics you want to hear. If you have an idea for a topic you'd like Justin and Ken to cover, connect with us on Twitter at Neon Goldfish or through our website at neongoldfish.com.